Let's remain standing so that we can hear our Father's word. Today we come to Deuteronomy chapter 5. And if you're good at finding these places, flip on over a little bit later in the Bible to Matthew chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5, where we have a, a statement of the Ten Commandments. Then a little bit later, Matthew chapter 5 and what Jesus said about one of them. Deuteronomy chapter 5 will be beginning, as we have almost each week, with verse 4. And let us remember that we are hearing our Father's word. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. And he said, verse 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. In rescuing us, he tells us how to live and it brings us to the sixth command, verse 17. You shall not murder. Now let's see what Jesus had to say about that command in Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 21. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with a brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift at the front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother and then offer your gift. Settle matters quickly. And this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. The sixth command simply says, you shall not murder. And I've spoken with a number of you about this. The first thought that we often have is, I don't have to worry about that one. Maybe some of the gangs out here might have some people who should worry about it. Maybe the people in the prisons. But no, I would never do such thing. I don't want you to feel safe today. In fact, I want you to know that when I thought about this commandment in a new way, I remembered again something that I read a long time ago and that John Lewis, who's the vice chair of our ministry council here, reminded me of. It's something from Francis Schaeffer, written back in the 1970s. And this is what he said. I think I have it for you to read. As I look across all the world, Francis Schaeffer said, I must see every person as a fellow creature. And I must be careful to have a sense of our equality on the basis of that common status. And then when I step from the creature to creature relationship into the brothers and sisters in Christ relationship within the church, how much more important to be a brother and sister to all who have the same father. There are no little people. And no little places in this world. Now, 
Am I taking this too far? You shall not murder all the way into looking at every human being as being a person of value and of worth. I don't think so. Now, for those of us who have been here these weeks, haven't you been surprised at how each one of these commands touches each one of us deeply? And that often, especially when we see the way that Jesus talks about them, they speak about more than simply the one little thing that's being restricted. How let God be God, the first command, is not simply about showing up at church once in a while. But it's looking into our lives and making sure what is first in our lives is actually God himself. Making us wrestle with this matter that so many times we put other things into his place. Or when we get to a command such as we looked at last week, honor your father and your mother. That's not just a statement that has to do with what little children should be doing. But it talks to us about the way we respond to every authority that God puts into this world. Now, if those other commands speak to us very, very deeply and to every part of our lives, what do you think about this sixth command? In which I boiled it down in this way, that what I think God is calling us to do is to treat every human life as sacred. Am I going too far? Well, let me push it as far as I can. <laughs> let me tell you what my prayer is for you as you come to church this morning. I've been praying for us at Lake Avenue Church and that we'll actually live out this command. And that I'm praying that each one of us is going to leave this church. And then when God brings people across our path. We're going to leave this church with this with this perspective. We're going to be saying people matter. God calls me to show honor, significance to all people. If I see people as he sees people, what I have to do is I must live a life of intentional compassion being directed toward all people who are made in the image of God. I've just thought that if you and I can get this perspective, what a difference we're going to make here in Southern California. And I think even farther beyond this place into all the world. So if that's what it's talking about, let's think about it. First, I believe that there's a lesson here about how you and I, as followers of Jesus, view human life. How we view human life. And the foundation for this commandment is found in the very creation story. In Genesis chapter 1, when God gets to the sixth day, he says... God created man, talking about male and female, in his own image. In the image of God, he created man. And then in case we miss it, male and female, he created them. And then even after people had failed so much and that God had sent a flood, God in chapter 9 of Genesis in verse 6 said, Listen, whoever sheds the blood of, of man, of a human being, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For in the image of God has God made man. See, a twofold case being made there as you put those two verses together. Number one, that all human beings, every one of us, has something sacred about us. Let me see if I can get this right so that I can make it through the rest of this morning. All right. Are you still with me? All right, twofold case. That God has made every one of us in his image. And there, therefore, number two, that we who see this are accountable to God himself for how we treat people. Now, the, the word in the sixth command is you shall not murder. Remember, it wasn't being written in English, right? 
And, and the Hebrew word is not the word harag, which means just to kill. The word is specifically ratzah. It's a Hebrew word for do not murder. Now, if you're with me here, the implication of that is it leaves some room for some things. It, it leaves some room for the attorneys and judges that we have at Lake Avenue Church to administer Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, which says that when people commit the kind of crimes in which they take a human life, blood guilt, that's a, that's a biblical term, attaches itself to them and the courts need to deal with them. It leaves room for that. It leaves room for, for a nation to provide for its national defense and national security. And some would say for what many have called a just war. And certainly this word, you shall not murder, leaves room for us as individuals and within our families to defend ourselves when we are being attacked. However, the broad principle is very, very clear. All human beings made in God's image. Therefore, we would never do anything to harm a human being because we see every human being as God sees. You know, this is my prayer that somehow as we become more and more devoted followers of Jesus, that as he transforms our lives, one of the things that he would change among us here at Lake Avenue Church is our eyes. Do you know what I mean? That we would begin to see as God sees Aren't you glad that God sees us as, as valuable people, so valuable that he sent his one and only son for us? Can we see all people as God sees? Now, when I talk about seeing every human life as so valuable, in some way sacred, made in the image of God, do you know that there are forces in our culture that are warring against that viewpoint? I've picked out the most radical view of that that I could find. Dr. Peter Singer, have you heard of him? He is a professor of ethics, of ethics of all things, at Princeton University. I remember first reading Peter Singer's works when I was in college. He published a book called Animal Liberation. And it was a bit of a scandal back in that day. He said that the religious community's elevated notion of, of human life is something to be scorned. He sort of said that all life has equal value. Plant life, especially animal life, and the human life is just one part of that kind of life. So he said you should never make decisions that give homo sapiens, that animal, uh, value over another. Um, about ten years later, he drew out the implications of that in a book called Pediatrics. And one particular statement created quite a stir throughout the United States, and I, I put it up here. In his book, Pediatrics, Singer said, listen, if we compare a severely defected a person that's disabled in any way, all of us are in disabled. See, I start, I start preaching about it even as I read. I'll just read it objectively. It's hard. If we compare a severely defected human infant with a non-human animal, a dog or a pig, for example, we will often find the non-human to have superior capacities, both actual and potential for rationality, self-consciousness, communication, and anything else that can possibly be considered morally significant. Now, what do you think of that? I'll tell you, Tom, this is not like a black church. People would be helping me out here. They would be saying, absolutely not. This is, this, this is not how we view human life. And in fact, the implication of that is that those who are older and whose quality of life has declined, those lives can be taken, and even infanticide, 
for a severely disabled child could be taken as well. Now, do you think everyone rejects it? I'll tell you now, in a recent article that is on his website, an article called Rethinking Life and Death, Peter Singer thinks the world is coming his way. In becoming a prophet, this is what he said. Listen, during the next 35 years, Singer writes, this traditional view of the sanctity of the human life will collapse under, under pressure from scientific, technological, and demographic developments. His prophetic word is that by 2040, it may be that only a rump of hardcore, know-nothing fundamentalists will defend the view that every human life from conception to death is sacrosanct. All right, here your pastor is up here telling you that your pastor believes that every human life is in some way sacred. Regardless of color, regardless of age, regardless of the amount of money that we have, every human being valuable. Do you know what? I'm putting myself into that rump. Look at that. Rump of the hardcore, know-nothing fundamentalists. I'm just identifying myself there. That's where, if that's what it is, because I see that this is what God tells us. We look at people and we see people as God sees. And God sees every human being as a person made in his image. Every one of us and every one we encounter is a person for whom Christ has died. I wanted to put that view of Singer in juxtaposition to another Christian man, to that of C.S. Lewis. I love his book, The Weight of Glory. I put a part of it in the worship folder. You should simply look at that. I pulled out a condensation of his view. He says that every human being has a weight about him or her. By that, he means a significance. Because God has made us in his image. Not only that, even though many of us have absolutely destroyed our lives by our choices, God is ready to forgive us, give himself to us, and eventually he is going to remake all, remake all who believe in Jesus into what we were created to be in the first place. So then mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis takes that up, and he takes this command of Jesus, be perfect. He takes it up. He said, this command of Jesus, be ye perfect, is not idealistic gas. It's not just Jesus using a bunch of words. Uh, my mother would call it flapping your gums, saying words meaning nothing. Uh, when Jesus says be perfect, it is not a command to do the impossible. Because Jesus is going to make us into creatures who can obey that command. He said that we were gods, those made in God's image, in whose image we are being remade. And he is going to make good his words. If we will let him. He will make the feeblest and filthy of us into, when God's done with us, He'll make us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. He is ready to make us into bright, stainless mirrors, reflecting back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale. His own boundless power, His delight, His goodness. Uh, the process of remaking us will be long and in parts very painful. But that is what we are in for. Nothing less. Jesus meant what he said. You see, God sees us for what we can be. Ah, He knows where we've fallen short. He, he knows where we failed. He does. But he loves us anyway. He sees us what, for what we can be. If only we'll let him. If we'll give our sins to him. Let him take them away and give our lives to him and have him remake us to be what he created us to be. And I'll tell you, if we develop his eyes, 
we see people not only for what they are, often irritating people, right? We see one another for what we can be and will be in Christ. I, I think one of the most vivid places for this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25. It was near the end of his life. He, he was telling a story. He said, let's envision what's going to happen at the end of the time. You're going to stand before the king, before God in judgment. He's going to separate those who have trusted him from those who haven't. And then just listen to what he says to those who have given their lives to Christ. The king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I, I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. And I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer Jesus, Lord, when did we see you in these ways? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. Do you see the point that even in the least of those, you can see something of the image of God and something of the image of Christ. If only we will have his eyes. So I see this sixth commandment first as simply being a way that we see people, all people. Now, alongside of that, it means we see ourselves differently. We see ourselves differently. Um, there is a paradox about us as human beings. There is the bad news and the good news. And we, we, we start with this good news, namely we were made in God's image. There, there is something about us that God himself loves. <laughs> the bad news is we, we, we've held him at arm's length and walked away from him. Each one of us, the Bible says all of us are like sheep and we have gone astray and we've turned others away from God too. The book of Ephesians is one where the Apostle Paul puts both of these sides, the glory of being human as well as the frailty of being fallen humans into one passage. I'll show it to you. How we view ourselves. As for you, Paul said, you got to acknowledge that you were dead in your sins and dead things can't bring themselves to life we, because of us walking away from God. We didn't know, but God loved us anyway. And, and since dead things can't make us come to life, we trust what he has done by grace. We are saved through faith in Jesus. That's not of yourself because you brag about it. This is a gift from God. It's not of works. It's not of our, of our works. But when we trust what he has done, when you become a follower of Jesus, here's what we become. We are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good, to do good works, to live as God would have us to live. The ones which God prepared in advance for us to do. See this paradoxical side? Yes, yes, we acknowledge. We see ourselves aright. We acknowledge that we, we ourselves need mercy. When we come to church, we can't be proud, right? But at the same time, though we acknowledge that we have sinned and failed, we know that God loves us. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller of the Redeemer Presbyterian Church, has said, he says it often in his messages, and I quote him just about as often. It's this, when you look at yourself, you are more sinful than you could ever dare imagine. And you are more loved than you could ever dare to hope. Can both of those be true 
They are. They are. And we human beings, when we look at this sixth command, are people who look at ourselves and see both sides of that. And because we've acknowledged that we've fallen short of what God would have us to be, it means that when we see people, we can't be proud. See, Christians, when we truly understand the message of Jesus, we can never look down on anyone. We can never have this attitude. Well, I would never do that sort of thing because we can see that we could. Uh, Adam Stiles, who's on our ministry council, gave me a book. It's called Unchristian. It's just come out by a man named David Kinnaman. And he, he's done research with the Barna Group to look at what people think about churchgoers. You know what the main thing that younger people think about churchgoers is? That we look down on people. That we always judge and act as if we've got it all and there's no hope for people like you. Do you see that that is the opposite of what it should be to be a follower of Jesus? We are, we are humbled. We're humbled, right? Can I just tell you sort of the logic of this, this Christian faith? Jotted it down as best I could. So when, when we become followers of Jesus, we've come to grips with the fact that we need to be saved. That, that means rescued. That we were in trouble because when we tried to do it ourselves, we were failing Right? Then we come into church and, and the Word of God is open and God says, I know all that about you. And I love you anyway. And I want to do something to help you. He sent His one and only Son. Yes, evil needs to be punished or a world is not moral. But the sinless one took our sins upon Himself so that in Him there is now no condemnation. Hallelujah. Right? There's the logic. So that we have simply fallen upon the grace of God and found mercy. And then the logic is, as we see other people crossing our paths, we have no pride. But we know we have some good news to offer. The good news is, if he could do it for me, there surely, surely is hope for you. And as we see people, as Jesus sees people, we would never do anything to harm them. Because we want them to have good news. Which brings us back to the way Jesus saw the sixth command in Matthew chapter 5. He said, now you've heard people saying long ago, do not murder. And he's talking about the way that many of the religious leaders were interpreting this. They were narrowing it, saying it only talks about going out with a, a gun or a knife and killing somebody. So I'm going to tell you what it's really about. And there's a progression. Anybody who's angry with his brother is going to be judged which talks about what happens deep inside of our hearts. It has to do with that smolding fire that happens when we get mad at somebody. When we want to do harm and hate people, it's the opposite of love. So that will never be a part of what a Christian does. And it gets bigger. When we have that anger, what happens is we start treating people like nothing. Anyone who says to his brother, Raka, maybe you even say, I would never say Raka to her. It's an Aramaic term, which is what Jesus spoke. And you know what it means? It means that that person that we see is insignificant. I think here in Southern California, it would be looking at a person and saying, you're nothing. You're nothing. You're not worthy of my time, my prayer, my energy, my thoughts. You're nothing. Jesus says that hatred toward people make us treat people as being worthless. And in the eyes of God, they are worth everything. 
And it can go, even go to this point of calling them, you fool, you fool, so that our words actually do damage to the person. Listen to me, one of the differences that Christ makes in us is that we know that evil is not just that exterior act. It is that. It is that where we actually go and hurt a person with our acts. But we know there's something interior about it. That all of that begins with what happens in our hearts. That that exterior act happens when we no longer see people as God does and when we become angry with people. So that what happens is when we see people in our world sinning, we can look inside of ourselves and we see the seeds of that, right? We, We never look at a person and say, I could never be that bad. Lord, I'm thankful that I'm not like that person who walked in the back of the church today. Because I would never, I'm going to sit up front because the pastor would be proud of having a person like me in the church. We would never do that. Instead, the attitude of a Christian is this. There but for the grace of God go I. And when we acknowledge that, it makes us love people more. We know that what God has done for us is available to them and that there is hope for all people. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, he's written some difficult things to understand. He was a journalist back in England. But I loved his Father Brown mysteries. Did any of you ever read these? They're kind of like Sherlock Holmes, except Father Brown is a Catholic priest, and he's amazing. He solves all these crimes. And finally, one of the London police officers comes to him and says, How do you solve all these crimes? And he says, it's because I look deep within myself and I see the seeds of evil within myself. And when I see what I could do, it helps me to know what they could do and even maybe how they might do it. That's how I saw those crimes. I jotted down a part of it. I show you all these things I like. How do you do it, says the officer? And here's what Father Brown says. How do I solve crimes? I begin by looking within myself. No one is really good. Until he acknowledges how bad he is, or might be. Until he's realized how much right he has to all this snobbery and sneering and talking about those criminals as if they were apes in a forest 10,000 miles away. No one's good till he's got rid of all the dirty self-deception of talking about those low types and deficient skulls. Till he's squeezed out of his own soul the last drop of the oil of the Pharisees. Till his only hope is somehow or other to have captured the one criminal, namely himself, and kept him safe and sane under his own hat. See, until we see it about ourselves and we say, Father, there's no hope for me. And he says, no, there is. I love you. And have received his grace. Only then will we be able to love our neighbor as ourselves. Which brings me to my last point. How we treat people individually. Jesus, in boiling down the second part of the table of the law, and this is the first one of them, simply said, Love your neighbor as yourself. See, if we've read what the Bible says and, and you've listened to what I've tried to communicate, then we, when we leave this place, we are going to value human life. Which human life? I believe we'll value human life in the womb. I believe we'll value human life in the community. Those people wrestling with, with gangs and with 
imperfect families. We're going to value the people. We're going to value human life at the end of the days of a person's life. And I think the flip side of this is to not in valuing it, you and I are going to make a commitment to living lives of intentional compassion to the people God brings across our paths. Uh, as I said, my prayer for us is that when we leave church today, we're all going to say, people matter. Tom, we would say, would never let you stay outside of that egg, uh, Easter egg rolling time because you matter. Chuck, Patty, Matt, we, people matter. That's what we're going to say. Uh, we're going to say, then I have to find some way to show significance, to honor to all people. I must live a life of intentional compassion to the people for whom Christ died, to people made in the image of God. Now, have I taken the sixth command too far? You know what I decided to do in case you might think that? I have pulled back to brothers and sisters who went, went through this walk with the Lord long before me. I pulled all the way back to the Puritans in the United States. Thomas Watson was a great Puritan preacher, and he wrote this very difficult book to read, but he boiled down how, we, how he could break this sixth command, and I put some of them here for you. How might we break it, Thomas Watson said in 1692? Yes, by killing with the hand, of course. Second, by killing with the mind. Because if we hate people, we cannot love them. Third, by killing with the tongue or pen. Or, or maybe with email or text message or what we put on Facebook. And four, by withholding from some person help we had in our hands to give. And even five, by withholding, withdrawing, or neglecting to give someone that which is necessary to preserve their lives. Ah, Sounds a lot like what I've been trying to say today. I pulled it back even farther. Went all the way back into the uh, Heidelberg Catechism in in the late 16th century. Let me tell you, this catechism, teaching, teaching, was teaching people how to actually live for Christ. And our followers of Jesus have, have read and learned this, memorized this, been tested on it for centuries. I came to the section on the sixth command, and this is what we read. I'll read the question. And a part of it doesn't have the gender neutrality that we have, but we'll, we'll follow with our brothers and sisters and know they mean all of us, male and female. Okay, ancient words, ever true. I'll read the question, and if you have the courage to do so, you can read the answer. I'll read it with you. Question 105. What does God require in the sixth command? Answer. That neither in thoughts, nor words, nor gestures, much less in deeds, I dishonor, hate, wound or kill my neighbor by myself or by another, but that I lay aside all desire of revenge, also that I hurt not myself nor willfully expose myself to any danger. Question 106. But this commandment seems only to speak of murder. Answer. In forbidding murder, God teaches us that he abhors its causes, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that he accounts all these as murder. Question 107. But is it enough that we do not kill any man in the manner mentioned above? Answer. 
No. For when God forbids envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, meekness, mercy, and all kindness toward him, and prevent his hurt as much as in us lies, and that we do good even to our enemies. What would happen in our community if you and I left this place actually living this way? Do you think people would be blessed? Do you think you and I could make a difference in our families, in our schools, and in our our communities if we would see and treat people this way? Sixth command, do not harm any person made in the image of God. You see, you and I, if, we're, if we've given our lives to Christ, we are Christians. We see as God sees when we see people. We see each human being as valuable. Then we look at ourselves and we say, hi, I, I'm one of those valuable people. Why did I walk away from God? Will he accept me again? And we walk back and we find that he does. Hallelujah. And then we go out wanting to tell people there's hope for me. So there is hope for you. We, we long when we come to church that one of the things that will happen is a transformation of our eyes. That we will learn to see people as God has seen us. And then leave this place ready to bring them the grace and hope and love of God. You shall not murder. Jesus says that will result in you loving your neighbor as yourself. May we have the wisdom and the power to obey that command, to bring blessing to this world and glory to our Father. Amen. Let's pray together. Now, our Father, I I pray I've been faithful to this word, and, and I pray that where I have been, you will anoint and empower it through your Holy Spirit and teach us. Father, for some who have come here today, who have never trusted you and and today hear that there is hope. May this be their day of finding this rescue of this salvation through Jesus Christ. May they bring those sins that they wondered. Could they ever be different? Could they ever be forgiven? May they bring them to you and hear you say to them, my grace is enough for you. That's why I sent Jesus. May this be their day of trusting the Lord Jesus for the rest of us. Father. Though we've heard that message so often, the implications of this, of living, of living in the light of it and of bringing this hope to our world is something that we need to continue to learn about. We're not yet all that we should be. So use this morning, Father, to continue to do your work of remaking us that we may live in a way that honors you. This we pray in Jesus' name.